Greetings, Topher Delaney here with our terrific podcast, Garden with Topher Delaney, celebrating individuals who are dedicated to our resource, the earth, in various forms. And today we have the fantastic farmer, Martin Bornonesk. Good day, Martin. And good day to be here with you. So, Martin, what are you doing right now on your phone? You seem to be texting someone. Well, in addition to providing produce locally in the SF Bay Area, I air freight produce weekly to restaurants and grocery stores in New York. And we had a hiccup this last weekend with the produce getting to New York a day late. And then the... Let's stop you right there. Okay. And it's a day late because it's been raining in California, hard to get the produce to the airport. It's a myriad of reasons, excuses, problems, issues. Mm -hmm. Delta has fewer wide-body aircraft in January than in other times of year. So the large containers that hold all of my produce only fit on these wide-body aircraft. And I got to get there at a certain hour. I don't get there. It has to fly the next day. And so that's kind of what happened this weekend. And do you get there two hours before if we go through TSA? The freight forwarder handles a lot of the crazy stuff. Mm -hmm. And they need me to be at their warehouse six to eight hours ahead of the flight. Oh my gosh, wow. TSA is looking good. Yes. <laughs> wow. So you're there six to eight hours. And then how many pounds are going back? To New York. A ton or two? A ton. Wow. What's in this ton? A lot of uh, citrus, a lot of root vegetables, a lot of cooking greens and salad greens, some jeweled dates, some nuts. About a third to half of what I'm shipping is grown on one of my two farms, and the other two thirds to half is from farmers that I know who grow things that I don't. So here you are in California, Martin. You've just mentioned you have two farms and you've got New York. Tell me about the two farms and then we'll get to New York. So ever since I first started farming around 1990. Are you from a farming family? Not exactly, no. I grew up in Berkeley. Obviously, we didn't have a farm there. But I do seem to have farming in my genes, as it were as my grandfather came from a small farm in France. My paternal grandfather came from France, and my mother came from Cusco, Peru, and it seems that while they didn't themselves farm, when I go to Cusco, I'm both a tourist and I'm visiting family, and it feels like I'm connecting to my indigenous growing desire. When I go there and I'm hiking in the ruins of the Incas, I can just imagine how they grew the things that they grew 600 years ago. Are you fluent in Spanish? Más o menos. Uh -huh. Unfortunately, okay. language is not one of my fortes. A second or third language is not easy for me, but I get by. So you grow up in Berkeley. You have a family coming from France and coming from Peru. And it's the 90s, I gather? It was the 80s, the 80s. Okay. when I was doing various things at SF State in addition to getting a formal education. And are those various things connected to farming? 
I had a backyard in my grandmother's house in San Mateo where I started growing vegetables for fun. Is this a French grandmother? Yes. And it was a hobby that turned into an obsession. And I was bussing tables at a restaurant. What were you growing there? Arugula, tomatoes, some corn, some peppers. I mean, did you just go out one day and go to the nursery and say, oh, there's some seeds. I think I'll just till up the ground. I mean, how old are you? 23, 22, 24, something like that. Actually, what happened was I was having lunch after a shift at Hay Street Grill, and a waiter had brought a seed catalog, a park seed catalog to work. This is in the 80s. Yes. 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 And I was, uh, can I borrow that for a second? And I started flipping through. And, you know, mind you, I had grown vegetables in my own backyard in Berkeley as a very young kid. So this was kind of harking back to something. That's a requirement, isn't it, in Berkeley? Almost. Almost. Everyone must have a backyard garden. Yes. But it's not easy between the redwood trees and the oak trees and the stony soil and the fog all summer. Things don't really grow well in Berkeley. That's what I learned. So you moved to San Mateo. So Well, there was a backyard available. A backyard was available. In San Mateo with much better weather and things grew prolifically and I happened to mention to Patricia Unterman, the owner of Hay Street Grill, hey I got these extra vegetables, would you like to buy them? Oh so you have the park seed catalog. Yep. And then I bought some seeds. What seeds did you buy? Early Girl and Lemon Boy tomatoes, which those varieties I still grow today, a few decades and later. And did they what what got you? Was it the color, the taste, the Sort of the the desire. What was what the was desire that? to grow multicolored tomatoes? Yes, and to grow arugula because arugula grows fast. It's a ubiquitous, fabulous salad green. How fast is fast? A month from seed great, to cutting. Great. Four to six weeks for sure. So, are you thinking to feed yourself this way, or what, what's the idea here? It's more of an instinctive desire to grow. Okay. That's insatiable, and and then what do I do with the stuff? How big is the backyard in San Mateo? It was actually fairly big. The whole lot was a quarter acre, and I probably had, you know, 50 by 50 feet to grow That was a good start. Yeah. And soil was good? It was okay. I built raised beds, eventually filling the entire backyard with raised beds as a not quite, but almost commercial venture. So you are raising beds. You're in San Mateo. You're in your 20s. Growing in San Mateo but living in San Francisco. And you're living in San Francisco, and you're working at a restaurant, and what is the name of this restaurant again? Hay Street Grill. And tell us a little bit about this. Is this a well-known restaurant, or? It's a restaurant near Civic Center and the performing arts area of San mm-hmm. Francisco that then and even now has a customers that are on their way to the opera and the symphony, or the ballet. And when I was busing tables there as the job that put me through college, there was both employees there who were very interesting people, who I got to know and who kind of mentored me in the path that I chose in my life. And also the customers were lawyers, judges, theater people, opera singers. And it opened my eyes to how part of the world operates. And operates means what they eat? What they eat, how they think, what they do. It inspired Conversations. Me. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, when Nancy and Paul Pelosi would come in before going to the opera, I would usually take an extra second or two to clear their plates just to catch a word or two, just to feel their connection, their special connection with each other. 
So you're surrounded by cultural people who are going to visit culture and partake of culture, which is close. It's about a block away. Is that right? Yeah. And what are you studying in college at this time? Initially, economics and political science. And then I got diverted with the speech and debate team. And then I further got diverted in taking five or six classes in the art department in photography. Well, would you say you were kind of expanding, or, or do you just think of yourself as a large river with a lot of tributaries? Something like that. Ah. I'll take that. Yes. Yeah, that's a, a very, very big river. It's great. But it is hard. I struggled in focusing on what I really wanted to major in and graduate in, and so instead of of pursuing that more conventional path, I chose to to take your metaphor to go up various different tributaries and explore. Mm-hmm. and develop myself in very different ways. I was like, do I follow my political passion and work for a political consultant in San Francisco? Do I try to become a professional photographer? Do I graduate and go to law school? Do I start a small farm from this large garden that I've created? Those were the very divergent paths that I was looking at. And obviously you can see which one I chose. Martin, as you talk, I'm reminded of our relationship to farming as political and that act of growing is political what you grow how you grow it and how you distribute it what do you think of that statement i don't quite see the direct connection between my own personal passions around politics Mm -hmm. and how my life has evolved around growing and distributing Mm -hmm. produce I have to think about that one a little bit, I think, because at the moment it feels rather divergent. I'm not particularly political in what I do, in in terms of produce. So Um, do you use genetically modified seed? I don't. Okay, well, that's a choice, wouldn't you say? It's a choice, but... I'm also not as rapidly against it as many people who I know are. Mm-hmm. It's a choice to not use it. I think it's actually much more complicated in terms Tell of... Tell me about complicated, because I think we all are interested in this subject. So the way I grow produce is certainly the old-fashioned way. It's by hand, in essence. Yes, we use tractors and whatnot, but commercial agriculture whether it's big organic or big conventional, is at a scale where they're using big machines that cost a lot of money. And farmers like me, where we're growing produce with tractors, with some equipment, but with also crews in the field. How many are? About six right now. You've got about six. And you said you had two farms. What what are the sizes of those? They're each about five acres. And they're located where? near Watsonville in a little community called Royal Oaks. And then the other one is just south of Gilroy. And, you know, we were talking about that earlier. I've always had two farms since I started farming in 1990 because the focus of my business as a farmer is to grow as wide a variety of produce to supply restaurants and home cooks throughout the year. Mm -hmm. And to best do that, I need to have two farms in two distinct microclimates, one that is cooler in summer and warmer in winter, mm-hmm. i.e. closer to the coast, mm-hmm. and then another one that is more inland where it's hotter in summer mm-hmm. and provides us with the 
extra space that we need to grow lots and lots of produce for winter. So I need a cool farm to have salad greens and cooking greens and baby root vegetables through the summer. Mm -hmm. And then that hot farm is where the tomatoes and the peppers and the beans and all the warm summer crops need to be grown. And between those two farms, we can grow between 130 to 150 different varieties of things throughout the course of the year. And that is, for you folks out who are listening to this, Martin does have an online presence. And do you want to say what that is? Sure. So at the beginning of COVID, I needed to completely pivot my business as 90% of my business disappeared in one weekend in the third week in March of 2020. And that weekend, after completing my deliveries on that Saturday, I immediately got my tech friends together to create a pay button on PayPal, to create an email that I sent out to everybody, and then they sent it out to their email lists. And within three or four days, we had a few hundred customers buying produce for home delivery. And within a couple of weeks, I had a rudimentary website and I had a name, martinsfarmtotable.com. And so in its current abbreviated form, we still do home deliveries and have pickup sites in the peninsula in Palo Alto, in San Francisco, and Berkeley in Oakland. What I have learned from this experience, well, first of all, the CSA, as it's called, Community Supported Agriculture, very poor name for what is a small farm's home delivery service. Why is that a poor name? Because community-supported agriculture doesn't really say what we do. What is it you do? We, not I, it's we, because I can't do it all. And I have a devoted handful to two handfuls of people that, you know, we as a team both grow and procure the best produce that I can grow or find and provide it to both home cooks and restaurant chefs and a few grocery stores in the Bay Area and in New York. And there is an important simplicity to taking care of oneself by eating well and simply. And I think the pandemic helped us understand some of the simpler, more important things in life. I never sold at farmer's markets or with the CSA previous to COVID. Why was that? Because it just didn't quite fit how I do things. I came from the restaurant industry to start a farm and then supply restaurants with. So that was just my niche. You're focused on restaurants and and deliveries to restaurants as well as individuals. But before COVID, it was all restaurants. Yeah. But I would say that there was a, a real epiphany for me in being able to create the CSA at the beginning of COVID because it connected me to people in their homes mm-hmm. and I found out how enthusiastic they are for what I do. I don't want to say that chefs are not enthusiastic, but it's really different. I think a family and a restaurant are, are two different structures, yes. Although many restaurants are like families, but... <laughs> and you know, the way there's a passion and an innocence that home cooks have, they have an enthusiasm for getting fresh produce that is certainly noticeable and helpful for me as I do whatever I have to do to keep this entity above water, both figuratively and literally. Martin, when you say enthusiastic, and I'm talking about now families and individual 
chefs that are not connected to restaurants, do they put out a request like, gosh, I would like you fill in the blank. What is it that people want? What's the most requested vegetable or fruit? Give me a list. Perfect little gems, perfect winter chicories. Little gems are what? They're baby romaine heads of lettuce. And colorful radicchios in the middle of winter are very popular. Right now, the mandarin of the moment is a page mandarin. But throughout the winter, me personally, and many of the customers, many of the home cooks, really enjoy getting that five-pound bag of mandarins, whether it's a kishu, a satsuma, a page, a pixie. There's many, many varieties that ripen from November all the way through April. Sounds like it'd be great to have a mandarin tasting. (laughs) Do you offer a mandarin in your CSA? Do you offer a tasting menu? Maybe in some ways the farm box is the kit that allows you to make a tasting menu. Yes, that's nice. Because there's always at least a couple of salad greens, one cooking green, and then different vegetables. And then I'm always putting in at least a couple of different kinds of citrus in winter, and then other fruit in summer, like stone fruit or later persimmons. Because I think it's wonderful to be able to make salads with fruit. So in the farm box every week, there's some kind of citrus usually. For example... If I'm putting chioga or gold beets Mm -hmm. in the farm box, I'm reminding people how wonderful it is to zest the orange into some olive oil. Oh, so you have notes in the box? Not in the box, but they're in the newsletter. So every time I send out a newsletter every week. You send out a newsletter every week, and is that part of Martin's Farm to Table? Yes. So sign up at that website. And you'll get my email every week. And even if you don't order a box, you will learn something about produce, about how to prepare and cook the produce. Do you write this yourself? Yes. My. Okay. And so we look forward to that every week. Let me go back to New York. So you have these two farms. Where does New York fit in? Why not, you know, Chicago? (laughs) Well, they don't love vegetables as much in Chicago as they do in New York. I see. And there is something about New York. About 15 years ago, I went a few times, crashing on friends' couches, and exploring both the art and the music scene and the restaurant scene, trying to get a lay of the land. Like many people, I had a dream of making it in New York in my own way. And I thought to myself, how could I offer produce to restaurants in New York in much the same way that I do to restaurants in the Bay Area. And I had one customer in New York, Eli Zabar, on the Upper East Side, who since the early 90s had been buying my produce. How did you meet Eli Zabar? And who is Eli Zabar? Eli Zabar is the youngest brother of the Zabars from the Upper East Side. He needed to move on from his older brothers and he picked up his little knapsack and went from the Upper West Side to the Upper East Side and started on his own. He started EAT, he started Ela the Vinegar Factory, he started a bakery and a grocery store and... Entrepreneurial, which is... Very. One of the most driven, passionate, obsessive people I've ever known. Uh, And someone who became something of a mentor in some ways. It seems he never sleeps, he never stops working but he also never stops having fun. Everything he does 
is clearly fun, in addition to being work. And he's I'm like, what is fun? Being passionate about the best food. And as someone said, he also pioneered pricing in that he is known for having very high prices for his produce or for whatever he's selling in his grocery store. But to be fair, he's trying to bake bread on Madison Avenue while everybody else is selling art. So it's probably only natural that it would not be cheap. So Eli Zabar opened a restaurant called Across the Street, across the street from his vinegar factory in the early 90s. And he hired a downstairs cook from Chez Panisse named Sean Lippert. What does that mean, downstairs cook? Is oh, there a basement? Or? That's the fancy part of Chez Panisse, is the restaurant downstairs okay. versus the cafe And that downstairs. restaurant is where? In Berkeley. In Berkeley, California. Whose restaurant is that? That would be Alice Waters' okay. famous Chez Panisse restaurant in Berkeley. And she is also a pioneer, am I correct? Absolutely. In Someone who's example... Farm to table, would that be right? You might say she is kind of where it all started. And it probably didn't hurt for me that Chez Panisse was not quite down the street, but down the hill Berkeley, from where I grew up. Oh, yeah. And my parents would go to Chez Panisse for dinner, for birthdays and anniversaries, when it was 12 or $14 per person, and the silverware didn't match. And... That, besides my country French grandmother living in San Francisco, cooking amazing, simple country French food, those were my, so my twin influences as I grew up. Even as a very young kid, I cared about the taste of food. I pushed the stool to the stove to be able to climb up and see what my grandmother was doing, my grandmère, what she was doing, what she was cooking, and she was not warm and fuzzy. But she did appreciate that I was on my own, with my own initiative, curious to understand what she was doing. And so she appreciated that and she responded. Is there a favorite meal that she had? Or? She made sweetbreads. Oh. Would you toast. want to say what sweetbreads are? Sweetbreads are the pancreas of the calf or cow, an unusual organ that seems particularly well suited to country French food. And the funny part is, I liked the sweetbreads. What I didn't like were the button mushrooms in the sweetbread sauce. I put those to the side. So there's something about mushrooms and kids. I think mm-hmm. it's a textural thing. Mm-hmm. Came around to mushrooms. Well, you're probably a little older. Yeah. It's an acquired taste. Yeah, for sure. So you grow up with two really extraordinary influences of this wonderful restaurant, Chez Panisse, and a grand-mère who is a wonderful chef. I would say cook. Cook. What's the difference? I, I don't know the difference. Well, a chef would cook for others. I see. And cook in a professional situation. So you didn't prefer- count when she was cooking for you? Mm, it's different. She was it's a cook. family. She's a fam- yeah. she family. Did, she was very closely connected to the so-called French Church in San Francisco on Bush Street, and she... What is the name of that church? Victoire de Notre Dame. My dad grew up in San Francisco with French parents, and I grew up with my grandmother cooking soups, salads, roast chickens, several courses, but there was no fanciness to any of it at all. Where did they shop? Where did they get all these chickens and vegetables? I think she went down to the, you know, there's the two grocery stores, Calmart on California Street in Laurel Heights. 
So it wasn't a farmer's market. She was going I don't to think an they even actual. Exist. Yeah, there was really it was no. Was a market. She yeah, a regular, a like an independent grocery store. Yes. But she cooked for the priests at Victoire de Notre Dame. And there was another much more famous woman named Josephine Araldo, who was a private chef to the Fleischackers and other people several generations ago. Who are these people? Famous rich people in San Francisco who needed to have a private chef. So she kind of innovated, or she was one of the very first private chefs. When was this? In the 30s and 40s. And then she eventually had her own small restaurant in San Francisco called Le Trou on Guerrero. And she also had a little cooking school. And when she was very, very old, there was a special lunch at Hay Street Grill to celebrate her life. And at that lunch was Joyce Goldstein, Marion Cunningham, Alice Waters, Judy Rogers, Patricia Unterman. Who are, who all are the, these? I mean, these are all know, important They all seem women. to be women. They're all important women who this woman chef taught how to cook. Decades and decades. So we know Alice Waters has shaped Denise. Who is Judy Rogers? She was the chef owner at Zuni Cafe and wrote one of the ultimate cookbooks, the Zuni Cafe cookbook. And Marion Cunningham. Who is this? She's a a chef who wrote cookbooks decades ago. And then Joyce Goldstein used to have a restaurant called Square One in San Francisco a long time ago. Is she also a writer? She has a cookbook or two, and she's, I would say, a prominent Bay Area chef. I'd like to see a photo of this lunch. (laughs) And the woman who, it is a woman who ran Hay Street. So Hay Street Grill is, uh, the chef owner is Patricia Unterman. Right. Um, Also a writer? Well, not only just a writer, but a former restaurant critic. Ah, she used to be the restaurant critic at the Chronicle, which is uh, the San Francisco, Francisco Chronicle, Chronicle, before Michael Bauer was the restaurant critic. So we're talking 80s and 90s. Mm-hmm. She was the restaurant critic mm-hmm. and a restaurant owner, which was controversial, but I personally would read her reviews and personally find them quite informative. And her background as a chef provided her with the skills of actually talking intelligently about food, which is something that I think is lacking in much of the reviews of restaurants that occurs today. I can see where it would be true. Yeah. You really have to know what goes into it in, in a way, and I think many critics are coming at it from a different angle, I believe. But back to you. So there is a lunch. Are you at this lunch? I'm busting tables. It's oh. a lunch that I happen to be working that day. Just How long did the lunch go for? Yeah, a couple of hours. What year is this? Roughly 1984 or 5. Uh-huh. And at this point, Josephine Araldo is a very, very old woman. What is she, 80? 80? 90? Somewhere between 85 and early 90s is my guess. What I distinctly remember, they're opening the door to let her in just before the restaurant opened for lunch. And she had her walker. And she banged that walker down the path to the table like a righteous woman. Is she a small woman or a big woman? A small woman, especially Uh at this point in her Mm -hmm. life. Mm -hmm. But a woman of deep character, a woman who clearly always spoke her mind, and someone who reminded me in a certain way of my grandmother who had... And she is French, this woman. Very much so. Very much. She grew up in France, went to the Cordon Bleu cooking school, 
came to the United States. And in fact, I urge anyone who's more curious to find her cookbooks online. Folks, at the end of this podcast, there is always a resource list that is compiled by my fabulous partner, Calvin Chin. And you can see all of the references to the cookbooks we're talking about and to Martin's CSA, and you can easily access this information. So this woman is important because she, did you say she's taught these women at the lunch? Josefina Raldo is important to me because she and my grandmère actually had a real connection. They cooked yeah. together yeah. at the Victoire de Notre Dame for the parish priests. My father went to grammar school with Josephine's daughter. And while my grandmère didn't have a professional connection to food, mm-hmm. Josephine did. And so in some ways, Josephine is an extension of my grandmère and someone who I think of as a signpost in some ways for how I've decided to live my life. But going back to the lunch and the signpost, which is eloquently said, Martin, what is her influence on these women at the lunch? Did they visit her? Josephine Arado taught all of those women how to cook at some point earlier in their lives. And they were having this lunch for Josephine, who was clearly at the end of her life, to acknowledge that, to help celebrate her contribution as a woman chef, teaching all of these other women who then became uh, well-known to famous in their own own right. So we have Josephine, and now we have Eli. (laughs) Eli, who is passionate about food and bushwhacks, it sounds like, accessibility to an extraordinary farm in California. So Eli's, Your farm. Yeah, so Eli Zabar hires this woman to be his chef at his new restaurant, who happened to be a cook at Chez Panisse. And when she's in New York, she realizes, especially in the early 90s, that she doesn't have access to the quality produce that she needs to cook like she did at Chez Panisse. And so she told Eli about me, and Eli connected me with Sal, his produce buyer. And in the early 90s, I started shipping produce to Eli's grocery stores and his restaurant. And they took care of everything. They took care of booking the container with the freight forwarder, and they went to JFK to, at that time, American Airlines cargo warehouse to collect the produce. Let me just stop you a second here. So this fellow, Eli Zabar, this passionate vendor of produce and known for baking the most delicious breads, how does he decide that he actually wants to make a connection with you? Why not produce from, I don't know, Chile? Well, he he certainly understood that California had year-round produce. He certainly knew that there was something happening in California vis-a-vis Alice Waters and Chez Panisse. And so he hires the chef from Chez Panisse and he starts getting produce deliveries from my farm. And he really likes what he's seeing in those boxes of produce, those first few shipments that I sent. So then I get a call out of the blue from Eli saying, I want to come visit your farm. 
I want to see what's happening there, what you're doing. I'm going to be visiting San Francisco in a couple of weeks. Can you show me around? And I took that opportunity to have a little salad available and have some hot pizza for my neighbor so that he and I could have lunch at my farm and talk. And I will never forget, here I have this little farm at the end of a dead-end road. What year is this? 1992 or three, maybe, something like that. And Eli is in a chauffeured Lincoln Town car, shows up into my dirt driveway, and pops out of this car with a bundle of energy. Is this a big man or a little man? He's not a big man, Uh but there's an intensity and an alertness. So, so curious. Where are you? This is uh, in Pomponio Canyon, which is an isolated canyon between San Gregorio and Pescadero on the San Mateo coast. It was my first farm, and it was a very beautiful place, but also very isolated and difficult to farm, as it turned out. And here I have Eli sitting at the table, and we just got each other instantly. We both have a very similar passion for food in every respect. I would say, you know, in the French tradition, also in the Italian tradition, Mediterranean tradition. And he's very direct and clear and honest about what he wants, what he desires, what he expects. I'm not sure that I could work for him, but I have learned how to work with him. And I've always had a tremendous respect for his appreciation, understanding, and passion for the highest quality of food. In fact, I'll never forget reading an article in the New York Times where they went and tested the salmon in all the grocery stores that was being sold as wild. And in fact, many grocery stores in New York were selling farmed salmon as wild, except Eli's grocery stores, where it was actually, truly wild salmon that they were selling. this is the vinegar factory? This was the vinegar factory and Eli's Manhattan. And what I will always remember is going to visit Eli at his grocery store and seeing a poster on the wall of the grocery store with him sitting with the salmon in his lap and the article in the New York Times explaining that he was the only one who was honest about the salmon. So you sit down at this table. What time of year is it? It was probably spring or summer. I carefully orchestrated it or curated it so that I had a tractor driver disking the field right in front of us. <laughs> so it was a dusty day. No, it wasn't dusty. It was very bucolic in a certain way. Mm-hmm. I was trying to give this New Yorker, this city New Yorker guy, as true and full a taste of what I'm about and, and what I'm trying to do. And he got it. And how long had these boxes been being sent out to uh, Miss Lippert, the chef? You know, that was a moment in time. That was a a segment of time where she was his chef and he had that restaurant. That didn't last very long. But Was that a week? uh, Three or four years, I think. Three or four years. Yes. You're talking farm terms, I see. Yes, where I was shipping produce for this restaurant and that chef, particular chef. What that started, though, was a decades-long relationship with Eli and his grocery stores and restaurants. Mm-hmm. And it showed me how one could get produce from California to New York overnight in large quantities. So we all are pretty aware, I, I think we're all aware of the cost. There's a significant cost in 
farming as an individual farm versus a large-scale corporate farm. And I would put you as an individual farm. Is that correct? Yeah. So your costs are larger because you can't, in essence, spread them out across one million tomatoes. Were you able to make the same price point in selling to Zabar's that you are here in California, or were you reducing your costs? How did that work for you as a business? I was charging Eli's, and I still charge Eli's, essentially what I charge local chefs. Mm -hmm. Maybe if I'm having to pay some of the freight, I've got to add on the freight. Right. Sounds initially like you got them onto a Delta cargo plane to Eli's. Did they handle all of that? You said they did. Did they continue to handle all that cost for you? So initially, back in the day, right. I would bring the produce to the airport, to a right. freight forwarder, right. and then I would wash my hands of it. Eli's would take care of the booking, and they would pay for the air freight going from SFO to JFK, and then they would have one of their trucks go to JFK to collect the produce. Right. What that did for me was show me how it could be done, uh, how I could do it on my own, and therefore how I could develop my own restaurant route through Brooklyn and Manhattan, which I did about 10 or 12 years later. Eli, in essence, showed me the way of how one gets produce from California to New York. When you did that, did you do that for about 10 years or was that? I, I sent Eli's produce, not exactly weekly, but often for about seven or eight years. Seven or eight years. And then I started my own farm Another farm after I shut down my first farm. And then after doing that for a number of years... And why did you shut down your first farm? Because it was just too hard to uh, make a living. And it was the size of the farm, not easy to get to? It was... It was a combination of several key things. I was farming on the San Mateo coast, which is not ideal for year-round farming, Mm -hmm. particularly in a wet year. And there was not the same proliferation of restaurants around the Bay Area that were interested in buying produce from small farms Mm -hmm. the way there was 10, 15 years later. And, you know, it was just not quite a workable business. You are a direct seller. You're not using a broker in California like a Frida or something. That's correct. So your direct sales, am I correct that you have a truck that goes on a route? And yeah, I mean, I would, you know, I have... Dropping off fantastic arugula or... I have an availability it. list yeah. that I email all the customers every week. They look it over, put together an order, give it to me. Me and my crew put that order together, we load the truck, and then me or one of my other drivers makes the deliveries. How many farmers like you are there in the Bay Area at that time? At that time, a few. Five? Something like that. There's lots of farms of different sizes with different markets. That are delivering? Not so much that are delivering. Most would be going to farmers markets or working with larger distributors. I would say in the last 10 to 15, 20 years, there's been more farmers that have tried to do what I've done. Um, one of the first to do what I've done is Star Root Farms in Bellinas. Warren Weber is considered one of the founders, one of the pioneers of small organic farming in the Bay Area. It's a beautiful piece of land. And he created not just a workable farm, but a very workable business. 
If I may, I know a little bit about Starroot, and I believe that is a funded venture, and I believe you're a little bit different in how you set up your business, that there isn't a funding of means. I think we can discuss later what Starroot is, which is a terrific farm, but there is capital behind that farm. Yes. Which is very important to understand the difference. You know, I started my first farm in 1990 with borrowed money from friends and family and a couple Mm -hmm. of restaurants. How much? About $80,000 in 1990. Okay. And I had a business partner, and she and I started the farm and worked for free for two years while each of us worked three shifts at the restaurant to cover our living expenses. And she decided that that life was not for her, and so she exited the business at the end of the second year, and I took it over completely on my own. And then... What's her name? Barbara Yungano. She was a cook at Hay Street Grill, and I was on the front busing staff, and together we took this adventurous, crazy plunge together to create a farm, never having farmed before. Did you find this land? Did you lease the land? Did you buy I le- the I've land? Always, no, I'd leased the land. I was looking for a piece of land that was warm but not hot. How big was it? 11 acres, tucked in the back end of Pomponio Canyon, about three to four miles inland from the coast. And there's water on the land? There is Pomponio Creek, which is quite modest. Mm-hmm. With the help of my landlord, we built an off-stream reservoir that provided... How many gallons? You measure water in these ponds by acre feet. Ah, okay. And so it was about a 10-acre foot reservoir. Oh. Which, if you can imagine a one-acre surface lake, 10 feet deep. That's grand. It's a real lake of sorts, yeah. Well, farms use a lot of water, you know. I'll be honest. You just, if you're going to grow things on acres and acres, one acre foot is 12 inches of water that you would probably use over three, four months, right? To apply an inch every couple of weeks, an inch of water every week. You know, we get an inch of a rainstorm. It's like an irrigation. So you have this, and how much do you lease the land for? You know, leasing land is very different in farms compared to what we're used to with having a residential or commercial lease. In farming, you lease acres per year. So at the moment, I lease a five-acre farm, and I pay $2,400 per acre per year. And so Is that a going rate? It's the going rate for high-quality farmland that is close to the coast. Rate of farmland is based on how much money you can make. And the cooler the climate, the closer to the coast, the more you're able... We're talking about California. Yes. Northern California in particular. A road, so you're close to maybe a road? Or? That doesn't matter so much. doesn't matter. Okay. What matters the most is the climate. So the cheapest land is in the Central Valley because you have hot summers and cool winters. And the most expensive land is in Watsonville where you have very temperate, mild summers where you can grow raspberries, strawberries, other cane berries, which have the highest value of any crop. So the berries do. Yes. And then the, you know, you'll also see lettuces and cauliflower and broccoli. Is that demand or what's the reason for that? Well, we all love our perfect strawberries, our perfect raspberries, our perfect blackberries. 
they're in demand throughout the country at every grocery store. And you need a cool climate in the summer because mm -hmm. strawberries, as soon as it gets to be 80 degrees, strawberries don't like it. And strawberries are a very intensive crop, both cash and labor-wise. So you have to spend a lot of money to create your plastic mulch beds, buy your strawberry plants and plant them in the fall, and then manage what is this them. plastic mulch bed? What is that? Strawberries are grown in plastic mulch beds, which means they make a bed with the tractor and then they roll out a plastic film over the bed and then punch holes and plant their strawberries. And the plastic holds the moisture and provides a place for the strawberries to lean against that's not dirty so that your strawberries don't get dirty. And so all, both organic and conventional strawberries are grown in almost the same manner where in the late summer, early fall, they work the land with the tractors to create these quite high beds and then they roll out. Is that one foot high? How it's high? about a foot high yeah. with one or two rows of drip hose underneath and then the plastic on top. And then they put the strawberry crowns, as they're known, into these holes every eight or 10 inches and then get it through the winter so that in late winter, early spring, these strawberry plants are flowering and then producing strawberries. And ideally from maybe March all the way through October or November. So in California, strawberries are an enormous, important cash crop, both organic and conventional. And they are all grown in the cooler coastal climates, and they drive the price of farmland up in those areas. So as you go inland from the coast, mm -hmm. the price of farmland goes down, whether you want to buy it or rent it. Because your options for what you're going to grow there become more and more limited, as you go further inland into warmer and warmer climates. You had mentioned in a conversation we had had prior to this discussion today about having a farm in an area where it got warm. Something changed in the climate. Soledad, was it? I used to have a farm in Soledad, which was my warm to hot farm. And I started that about 12 years ago. And in those 12 years, I was noticing that the summers were getting hotter, the heat waves that we were having were getting much hotter, and causing a lot of duress to my plantings. And so, in the last year, I have moved my two farms from Salinas and Soledad to near Gilroy and near Watsonville for various reasons. It's closer. It's smaller farming footprint because I was farming too much land given the how nature was, of my markets. How big was the land there? I had a 20 acres and two acres. So I was farming about 22 acres previously and now I'm farming about 10. And I needed more land in a cooler climate. So now I have five acres to six acres in a cooler climate instead of just two previously. Mm -hmm. And I have five acres in the warmer climate. And, and it's closer to you. Yeah, it's about a half an hour to 40 minutes closer to San Francisco. San Francisco, which is your market. Which is both my market and my home. Ah. So I'm a commuter farmer. Yeah. Going back and forth between the Mission District of San Francisco and Gilroy and Watsonville. Do you drive there every day? Not every day, no. Three days a week. 
Days. And I often spend one night or two nights a week at one of my farms or nearby. So let's go back to what I wanted to discuss before the discussion about the climate change, which does not appear to be changing. It appears to be getting warmer. It's definitely getting warmer in the sense that when we have heat waves, the places that are hot become really hot. Mm -hmm. So that I learned in, in Soledad, instead of being 95 to 105, we were having heat waves much more regularly in the 105 to 115 degree range. So by having a farm near Gilroy, where I just moved to, that area, when we have the hottest heat waves, it's actually a bit cooler there than it is just a little bit further away, just because of the fact that it's close to a saddle in the ridge where the cooler air from Watsonville can come in. So I'm going to go back to Eli, actually. You go through this seven to eight years with Eli, and you get a sense of what you can do shipping, and that is to stabilize your market. Is that correct? Yeah, stabilize your farm output. It's really important as a small farmer to have some version of a diversified uh, marketplace. So I maybe have a few grocery stores, I've got restaurants in the Bay Area. And you know, part of it also is just that idea of making it in New York. Going to New York, checking it out, realizing this is a really wonderful, dynamic place. And I succumbed to the myth of wanting to make it in New York. And so I did some exploration on a few Farms trips. to table in a big way. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and so I had this crazy idea of wanting to offer chefs in New York exactly what I offer chefs here. They get their email with my availability list. They place an order. Two days later, we're putting that order on a plane. We're 48 hours from the chef placing the order to them getting a delivery in New York. And they're not coming to a transfer station or a warehouse you are delivering in New York, is that correct? So in my exploration in New York, I got to know couple of handfuls of really wonderful people who are both farmers and foragers and restaurant people. Name a few. Well, there's a dear friend, Johanna, who I met in New York when I was entertaining the idea of selling to chefs in New York. She was a forager at a restaurant. What is a forager? Literally, a forager is someone who goes into the woods and mostly collects mushrooms. A forager in quotes, which is really what I'm talking about, is a glorified purchaser of a restaurant or a restaurant company that doesn't just act as a purchaser, checking off the boxes on the clipboard, but goes beyond that by reaching out to farmers and producers of whether it's cheese or poultry or fish or meat. It's sourcing, it's creating relationships, and then doing the nitty gritty work of checking the boxes on the clipboard. Chapinese sort of pioneered decades ago the idea of having a forager in quotes on staff. Uh -huh. Catherine Brandel and Alan Tangren were two of the original foragers at Chapinese decades ago, who in many ways provided a model for how this is done. There are a handful of people who've had this job, both in LA and in New York, uh -huh. as so-called foragers. I was a forager for a restaurant group in San Francisco 
in between my two farms that I had. I took a three-year break between having my two farm businesses. What group was this? At the time, it was run by a restaurateur named Reed Heron, and mm -hmm. it is called Nice Ventures, is the restaurant group. And he, at the time, had Rose Pistola, Black Cat, and Rose's Cafe, mm -hmm. with aspirations to have more restaurants. So as I was shutting my first farm down, I arranged with him for him to hire me to be his forager and to create a dynamic purchasing division or department within his restaurant group. It was an interesting, innovative experiment that ultimately didn't work for economic reasons. Why? Because the dot-com crash happened, and instead of going from three restaurants to five, he went from three restaurants to two. Downsizing. Yes, and I was part of that downsizing. So you did have an opportunity to learn about the horizon of food, it sounds like, when you were working with Mr. Heron. You were being paid to see who was growing what. It provided me the correct? opportunity to take my skills as a farmer and reach out to other farmers I knew, explain to them, with me in this new role, mm -hmm. how I could benefit them by offering a fair price to these farmers. I also was able to create relationships with brokers to mm -hmm. buy produce in bulk and to try to create what I would call a healthy compromise from the restaurant's point of view of both buying small farmer produce in significant quantities, but also realizing that the economic reality required us to buy conventional produce as well and how to balance those two in a way that provided the kitchen with some produce that was cheap enough to keep the prices in line mm -hmm. while also having the room to work with small farmers to provide significant amounts of produce to the kitchens. And that job also helped me understand from the chef's point of view, I would say that one of my unique skills is to be well-versed in both the chef's world and culture and in the farmer's world and culture and to act as something of a liaison between these two very different cultures. And do you continue now to work with Eli? And yes, I'm still shipping usually two or three times a month to his main grocery store, Eli's Manhattan, and that is part of a bigger route. You know, the way this evolved is that in my various trips to New York, in mm -hmm. researching this and getting to know people, mm -hmm. I found a delivery service that goes to JFK, to the Delta cargo warehouse, mm -hmm. to collect my produce that is air freighted to New York. And every box has a yellow label for Brooklyn or a white label for Manhattan. And they literally unpack these containers, load the truck in reverse order of the route. And after leaving JFK, off they go to make the deliveries. And by the end of the day, it's all done. And all the produce has been delivered. And so there's no warehouse involved. It's as efficient as possible, where we put the order together on a Thursday. Ideally, it flies on a Friday, and it's being delivered on a Saturday. Farm flight <laughs> table, I think. It's, this is a new method. Farm flight table. So what I'm learning, which is very interesting, and I did not know this prior to this discussion today, 
is that you offer a delivery service that really is fantastic for a chef or a staff because they don't have to leave their kitchen and then start foraging themselves in a warehouse and hoping to get the best. And often the warehouses are quite a distance. And so they're having to go there. There's no guarantee, little certainty of what they will get. And they're competing to get what they're getting. And so you're kind of overcoming that hurdle for a number of restaurants that are willing to pay more but in a sense, they're not, because they're not paying for their staff to drive somewhere. You know, there's some real economy to this decision. Exactly. You know, one of the things that I realized in going to New York, visiting with these restaurants, is that there are a lot of local farms in New York, in Pennsylvania, in New Jersey. When I go to the Union Square Green Market during the peak season, it rivals anything we have here in California. But... They have a real winter and we don't. And that's where I come in. Mm -hmm. And I quickly realized that there was a huge opportunity for me to provide produce to New York primarily on a seasonal basis, such that roughly speaking between Thanksgiving and Memorial Day in late May, it's a wide open market for me because there's just not a lot of local produce. Mm -hmm. And so my season is winter of selling to New York. I do sell year round, but as soon as local produce arrives in late May or early June, my sales drop significantly, maybe mm -hmm. even precipitously. Mm -hmm. And then I'm left managing a year round business that has a seasonal component. So we plant enormous amounts at my two farms in late July through October for the winter. Because I sell lots locally in winter, and I sell enormous amounts to New York in winter. I sell more produce in January than I do in July, which is sort of upside down compared to mm -hmm. most other mm -hmm. farms. Mm -hmm. And that's just the nature of how my business and my farms have evolved. And in the summer, do you downsize the amount of planting you do? How do you shift? I mean, you're not sending to New York, so where does... So we grow more summer crops. Well, yeah. we do downshift a little bit in the sense that we just plant less acreage overall. Mm -hmm. The plantings that we're making for summer are all the typical summer crops, tomatoes, peppers, squashes, etc. Plus, we're always growing the salad greens, cooking greens, and root vegetables. Baby lettuces, arugula, kales and chards, and baby carrots, and turnips and radishes. Local restaurants are always wanting those things. So that's kind of the foundation or the base of the farm and the business. And then we'll have lots of tomatoes and peppers and squashes for local chefs and the CSA. And that keeps us fairly busy. And then by late May, I'm getting transplants started to then start transplanting in late July for winter. So it feels like it never ends. There's a lot of prep work. I mean, it's a lot of turning the, the, over the funny the thing soil. is, it's very similar to the fashion industry in that we're always six months ahead. So, you know, in, with the fashion industry in the fall, it's the spring show. I'm already finishing my tomato and pepper seeds that I'm buying and getting to the transplant grower. Mm -hmm. And soon I'll be thinking about what winter crops do I need to start buying seed for so that by April and May, those 
seeds are being grown for us to plant in late July through October for a year from now. And talking about seeds, do you have certain seed growers you work with? Or is there There are seed many, companies. Many different. Because I grow mostly heirloom, Italian, or French varieties, mm-hmm. there is an Italian seed company that has a, a United States distributor. And so I'm buying a lot of seed from Frankie Cementi Seed Company in Italy. It's a great through, name. Through a local distributor in the United States. I'm also Who buying... Who is the local distributor? Seeds of Italy in Kansas, of all places. Seeds of Italy. Seeds of Italy, yes. GrowItalian.com. And you can go there and buy your seed packets for your own backyard if you'd like. And has that market changed, the seed market? Have you seen a shift in what's being offered? Are we seeing new eggplant? There's always hybrids? there's always new things. Both you know, well, there's always obscure hybrids. I'm sorry, obscure heirlooms mm-hmm. that can come back into fashion. They could be obscure hybrids too. <laughs> and then obscure hybrids or other hybrids that yeah. people are developing because you know you need to get a yield out of it. So mm-hmm. hybrids help you get a yield. And there's one crazy example is the honeycott butternut squash. It's a smaller version of the butternut. Uh-huh. that is better tasting, sweeter, more nutty, whatever. And so that's the one the chefs really want. So this year I'm getting the seed and I'll grow that for the first time. That's one little example. There's probably hundreds of varieties of tomatoes between many different cherry tomato sizes, heirloom tomatoes, early girls, and you know, we all have our favorites and I buy What are your of- favorites? Lemon Boy and Early Girl are my personal favorites. Which you started out with. Which I started growing in the late 80s. There's also an Italian tomato called Pianolo, or Pianolo. I don't know how to say it exactly in Italian. But this is almost like a mini Roma tomato that has a shelf life of almost a month. And they're amazing to eat in a salad, to cook in a pasta. And a few people know about them, but... I'm going to try to do what I can to make them more popular. We'll see. This shelf life, what is the shelf life of these tomatoes? What are you generally expecting? It really depends on the tomato. Yes. So, but just know, an average, you know, is A there... week or two is a shelf life of most tomatoes. It's very fast. Well, yeah, because you want to pick it when it's ripe. Yep. And then it's going to get overripe as it sits on your counter and you need to eat it before it turns to mush. It's quick. But Got for some reason, these pianolo tomatoes are slightly thick-skinned, but they're also not that watery. Mm-hmm. And they are able to just hang out forever. In fact, in Italy, they hang them in their barns. In some sense, let them cure, mm-hmm. let them sort of get a little more condensed. They don't dry, and that's when they're most flavorful. So you can see photos of these Italian farmers and Italian cooks hanging these clusters of pianola tomatoes for a while, a month or two. And we do, you know, our own kind of California version of that by picking them and letting them sit in totes and then selling them. And because they have shelf life, they're extraordinarily helpful as the farmer. And it turns out if you treat them right and wait patiently for them to almost kind of cure or age in their own way, they become more flavorful. This sounds like a wonderful 
would you say fruit? Is a, a tomato a fruit or a vegetable? It, it's both. Oh. <laughs> Technically, it's a fruit. Fruit. That's but what I thought. We treat it as a vegetable. We treat it as a savory item savory. in our kitchen, right? And what of the European ones? Uh, you said French. What other seed companies are you uh, ordering from? I don't so much order from French seed catalogs or companies. In the United States, there's Johnny's Selected Seeds mm-hmm. in Maine, yes. which I would say one of the premier U.S. seed companies in that their seed stock is often developed on their own. Mm-hmm. or they work with other people to develop seed stock that's of very high quality in terms of market gardening slash small farmers for durability, for yield, for flavor. Mm-hmm. There are other seed companies that are more interested in yield for production for big farms. Johnny's is much more oriented towards the serious gardener to the small farmer where taste and flavor and culinary quality of the fruits and vegetables is what matters most. I have actually used them and I've had a very good germination rate, Mm -hmm. which I was very pleased with in contrast to some other seed companies who I did not have a good germination rate on. So that's something you folks out there to pay attention to. What is the germination rate of seeds? And any other seed companies that you'd like to share? There's one in the Pacific Northwest that has a lot of unusual varieties called Osborne Seed Company. They have the best selection of heirloom radicchios that are probably hybrids and are very well developed for color and yield. Mm -hmm. They're well selected. They cleaned out the weird parts of the seed and got to where the seed is very consistent. And they have unusual varieties that others don't have. So are there any new seed coming up that you've heard of or you're trying? How do you do this? How do you decide what to grow? There's a local Salinas seed company that has all their fingers in different places to get seed. They have certain things that I get, whether it's a certain particular spinach or beans. Mm -hmm. There's probably seven or eight different companies that sell seed that I'm getting very particular seeds from here and there. What I'm headed towards in this conversation is, do you shift in your growing on vegetables? Do you shift yearly? How many new introductions do you do? Or do you stay pretty consistent because people know what you've got and... You really want to hold that line. I was just creating a list for my crew to start referencing in terms of things that we're planting. Mm -hmm. And I very quickly got to 75 different varieties of things. Dang. And (laughs) that's not even half of what we might plant in the course of a year. You know, there's three or four different colors of carrots. There's three colors of beets. There's two colors of radishes. So it doesn't take much to get to a large number of different varieties that Mm -hmm. we're planting. Mm -hmm. And that remains more or less the same year after year. So there are occasionally things that I bring in that I try and they work or they don't work. Chinese cabbage was something a couple of years ago that I grew for the first time. An heirloom uh, yellow and white Chinese cabbage, Johnny's has a really beautiful red Chinese cabbage, and they worked amazingly well two years ago. And last year at the new farm, they did quite poorly. So now I gotta figure out, you know, maybe I need to grow them at a different location. That's just one little example. 
uh, trying something new. So in your offering of different vegetables, do you start to stay within certain cultures? You know, it's primarily Mediterranean-based Mediterranean. That's, I was uh, wondering. Thank you. And so the French, Italian, Mediterranean, was a little bit of African, but, you know, essentially Mediterranean cooking. <gasps> Tell me about African. What do you have? Well, I was thinking Moroccan, you know. Moroccan? We, I tried cumin once. It oh. didn't work very well. Fresh okay. cumin doesn't quite work. And what does that mean, doesn't quite work? Doesn't grow? It grows, but you don't get much. I think, actually, we're all very familiar with cilantro. Right. It turns out it bolts very quickly, cilantro, which means that it goes to flower. Well, a bunch of cilantro flowers, now we're talking, is it coriander, is it cilantro? The green leaves that grow on the stalk that goes to flower is much more pungent than regular cilantro. And then you have the actual small white flowers of the flowering cilantro, which taste amazing and different from regular cilantro, and chefs love it. So we'll plant a very modest amount of cilantro, harvest some bunches for a restaurant or two, but more importantly, let it go to flower. And then it gets really interesting because the flavors are so much more dynamic. Mm -hmm. There is, my personal favorite is to take a bunch of flowering cilantro, take all the leaves off the stems and make rice, regular white rice with some garlic cloves and this very strong pungent cilantro into the rice and you get this green, uniquely flavored rice to go with whatever you're also making. So do you share that wonderful description in your newsletter? Absolutely. I take three decades worth of experience, both as a farmer and as a farmer delivering into kitchens of restaurants. Mind you, I will always take an extra minute or two to look over and see what these cooks are doing asking little questions about how they're preparing something that catches my eye, absorbing that information and knowledge of what's happening in these amazing kitchens of restaurants that I'm delivering to, and then play with that in my own kitchen, and then tell home cooks what to do with what's in my farm box. How many restaurants do you deliver to? Probably 20 to 25 locally, and about the same number in New York varies depending on the time of year. Yes. But there's about 25, 30 restaurants in the Bay Area and, uh, and about 25 or 30 in New York that either occasionally or regularly or frequently buy produce from me. So that's a lot when you have also grocery stores and then your CSA boxes. Yeah. About 80 to 90% of the business is to restaurants and then a little bit to home cooks and a little bit to grocery stores. So where do you see yourself going as a farmer? Are you going to continue on with this? Do you have children? No children. My plants are my babies, one might say. We've got a lot of children. <laughs> <laughs> I've been doing this for a long time. It's getting only harder for many different reasons. Give Whether us a few. Costs. We all hear about the costs that restaurants are facing. Increased labor, increased rent increased costs of the ingredients. Mm -hmm. For a farmer, it's all those things, but worse, more extreme. Labor, we have a, a new minimum wage in California in the last five years. Our living wage here now is $15 an hour. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. Five, six, seven years ago, it was 10. It's a wonderful and important improvement in the lives of the farm workers. It's also a dramatic increase in the cost structure for small farmers. Mm -hmm. There's no way to get around either of those. It's necessary for the farm workers to be able to afford to do the work that they do for us. Mm-hmm. It's also very difficult for us farmers to pass that full cost onto our customers because agribusiness can mechanize, and they are mm-hmm. dramatically mechanizing mm-hmm. as they face this same increase in labor costs. We cannot because we're just a small scale. We do everything by hand, essentially. And I'm competing against the bigger farms that are able to mechanize. So whether you're going to your farmer's market or to your local fancier grocery store that is buying from small farmers, you have definitely noticed paying more for small farm produce in the last several years. And it's still not enough. Mm -hmm. So that's why I downsized my farming operation from 22 acres to 10. Mm-hmm. to grow smaller amounts of things. You know, I'm never going to grow larger amounts of potatoes or tomatoes or other things for distributors, for a bigger market, because it doesn't pencil out. I'm seeing farmers at every level, from small farms to the biggest farms in Salinas Valley, cut back on their acreage that they're planting, because anything that was break-even a few years ago, now they're losing money. And then on top of that, you're also seeing increases in the prices of all kinds of fruits and vegetables. So for me personally, I'm trying to find a stable place with a new, smaller farming operation that will enable me to have a sufficiently modest income to live, in essence, as an artist in San Francisco, which, as we know, is an extremely difficult thing to pull off. So you'd say you're the poster child of the art of farming. I'll go with that. Because it's, in a sense, creative what you're doing. The land is a kind of a canvas. When I'm flipping through seed catalogs and determining which ones I'm buying, it kind of feels like I'm picking colors, Mm -hmm. pigments in some Mm -hmm. sense, that are going to go on that canvas. Does a farmer such as yourself, which I would say is a specialty farmer in a sense, do you inform the larger farms on what to grow? So you and your community of individual farmers are not going to try and grow things that large-scale commercial farmers would grow. Why? doesn't make sense to me quite. But maybe they do, but... When they see what you're growing, do they start to be educated and say, oh, you know, we're going to move to radicchio? Do you see a relationship there between you as the experimental artist farming enterprise with these larger farms? It does happen, but it happens over decades. For example, 30, 35 years ago, there were a bunch of us small farmers taking our scissors to our 10 or 12 different salad greens in the field and picking them all and making a mix called a salad mix, a mescaline mix, a baby lip. And then the big boys started to see how that niche was evolving. Fast forward today, three decades later, agribusiness has completely taken over that and they have enormous machines that plant rows every couple of inches over an 80 inch bed 
And then they come in with a bandsaw that mechanically harvests the perfect three to four inch salad greens. You know, they are the McDonald's of mescaline. Right. And that's how you can go to a typical grocery store and whether it's the loose bin or the plastic carton of washed, ready to eat, fancy salad greens, that's ubiquitous across the country now. And that started with Star Root Farms and other farms growing by hand the 10 or 12 different varieties of salad greens, cutting it with scissors or knives, making a mix, selling it to restaurants and farmers markets, the big boys seeing that evolving, and then putting in the investment into taking it commercial and to a gigantic scale. So now you can find reasonably priced fancy salad greens in supermarkets across the country. Thank which, you. Which is maybe not such a horrible thing. But no, it's a great thing. Us smaller farmers have to find our own niche in the aftermath of that by growing varieties that they don't grow, by having our own distinctive, unique arugula, salad mix, baby lettuces, etc. Well, you're more nimble in a, in a way. Yeah. In a way, you're more nimble in a way you're not because of finances. You know, if a restaurant doesn't like it, you're kind of stuck. You know? For those who are interested, there is um, a farmer named Todd Coons, who was both a protege of Alice's at Chez Panisse, mm -hmm. and who started his own very large farm called TKO Organics, Todd Coons Organics. Where was this? In the Salinas area. And this was in the late 80s, early 90s. He was very, very successful, and then the whole thing collapsed. And I would say he's a poster child of taking it from the small farmer to the mass scale, mm -hmm. and then having the other large competitors see what he was doing and take it to an even higher level. And there's an article about Todd Coons in The New Yorker that you can find through Google. Or okay, well... That well, is um, very interesting. It's a complicated relationship in terms of the small farmer and the large farmer, and one is not a farmer, really. It's a corporation of some kind. Then you've got an individual and you have a corporation. But what you have done and you should be proud of is that you have paved the way for the folks in the United States, all over the United States, to have access to salad greens. We had iceberg lettuce for how many years? And what you've done is brought us diversity on various economic scales, whether it's a large-scale market box like Costco, where they are vending this type of greenery, and you're seeing people have access to decent food. And I really thank you for that. Not everyone can go to these wonderful restaurants that are truly spectacular, but are out of someone's price range. They just are. You know, it's just like Chanel or fast fashion. It's different. We have different scales of economy. And having farmed in the Salinas Valley for the last 20 years, I have my own, in some sense, grudging appreciation for what agribusiness has done in terms of taking what us small farmers were doing, are doing, mm -hmm. bringing it to scale, because there is no other way to feed America. 
it has to be done at scale. Some of it, maybe much of it, is organic. The parts that are not organic, that are conventional, without a doubt, have much less inputs than they used to. I would say that what I've seen as a small farmer, farming on a small piece of land in Salinas, surrounded by a sea of, I felt like an island of organic farming, where I was, surrounded by a sea of conventional agriculture. And in those 20 years, I have seen a definite evolution towards less inputs, more efficiency, whether it's water, fertilizer, pesticides, etc. There's a definite trend. And that's how supermarkets across the country now have these little salad kits and cut vegetable kits and whatnot that is primarily grown in the Salinas Valley. And then all that moves to Yuma and Southern California and Southern Arizona in the wintertime. So right now, all of the salad and baby root vegetable production is happening between the California and Arizona and Mexican border. And that feeds the nation from roughly November through February or March, and then roughly April through early November. It's the Salinas Valley in Central California. Martin, I want to thank you for feeding us and for being courageous and for choosing a life that is innovative and generous. Thank you. Thank you.